Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 102. This week's feature, Gateway Game Expansions, the best and the worst. We'd like to thank our listener, Renee, for suggesting this outstanding feature. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. This is Anthony. And this is Daniel. Welcome to the episode, everyone. We're so glad to have you back again this week. We got a great episode for you. As we said in the beginning, one of our listeners, Renee, who's currently going through our back catalog, suggested this great feature. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. But before we get into all that fun, we want to talk about our friend Drew, who's unfortunately not able to be here on this week's episode. He sends his best as he's out there advancing his acting career, and we hope to have him back real soon. Shout it from the tabletops! (laughs) Sir, you're gonna need to get down from there. Alright, so let's get to some of the big news that's hitting board gaming right now. Now, there's nothing bigger... And maybe we're a little bit biased here, but there's nothing bigger than the Dice Tower Network's award. So what we're talking about here is the 2015 nominees. Now, as part of the network, Board Gamers Anonymous added our nominations here, but also everyone, all the podcasters, all the video casters, all the journalists kind of added in all of these great games. They sorted through them all. They, they voted. And here are the final nominations. So this week, we want to talk about some of these different categories, let you know what's coming up. And if you haven't heard about these games before, all of these games are winners on one level or the other. So you should definitely check these out. So gentlemen, let's talk about the different nominees in these categories. Let's. So first up, we have Best Board Game Component Nominees. And we have Blood Rage, which we are, I don't know, maybe partial to if you've ever listened to our podcast before. We also have Cthulhu Wars, Flick 'em Up, Forbidden Stars, and Star Wars Armada. What do you guys think about these? Ooh, that is a tough competition. For me, it comes down to either Blood Rage Armada or Flick 'em Up. Oh, okay. And I'm not sure which way I want to go there, actually. Yeah, this one's tough. I mean, Blood Rage, it's such a pretty game. But for me, you got to think, too, like, which game couldn't exist without the current components it has. I feel like you could play Blood Rage if you just had chits on a map. It wouldn't be as much fun, but you could play it. To say Star Wars Armada is, is is probably the best components because the ships are so iconic and the craftsmanship that Fantasy Flight puts into these games is amazing. So it's really great to see these, these gigantic capital ships kind of shrunk down to these little miniatures. So, man, this is really going to be a hard competition this year. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it depends on how much credit you give for originality, right? So if you deduct from Fantasy Flight for the fact that pretty much they're making models of pre-existing entities, right? In fact, if you really want to know, there are probably hundreds of books out there with very detailed model models of these ships in them, right? Technical specifications and the sizes of all of them for, from all the super fans out there. So, I mean, on that respect, the modeling might not have been that difficult. It was kind of handed to you. 
So I have a little bit of respect for, you know, for Blood Rage and for Flick'em Up for doing this in its own way. Right, you know, the, the models sure. were either, in, in Blood Rage cases, right, they, they made their own art and designed their own models off of that. And then Flick'em Up, I feel like the, as Anthony was pointing out, right, the uh, components are such a central piece of the game. Uh, and it made such a a well-made de- well-made dexterity game, which is something that's been hard to find in the past. Uh, so it'll, it'll be interesting to see how voting goes. Sure. And then Forbidden Star has some great miniatures, and Cthulhu Wars is just primarily known for its miniatures, which are gigantic. But this is a good year for miniatures, and especially these components. Cthulhu Wars is bonkers. So if you were going to go by, like, craziest, biggest miniatures, then it would win by default. But again, do they need to be that big? I don't I mean. <laughs> Are you saying that they were mad and when they met that made them that big? <laughs> madness. Miniature madness. <laughs> ah, Cthulhu jokes. <laughs> Never get old. I know. Never get the old ones. All right. <laughs> Best co-op games. We have The Grizzled, Mysterium, Pandemic Legacy, Time Stories, and XCOM the board game. What do you guys think? Dude, this is a... Uh... This is crazy. This is this is like cream of the crop right here. I don't know. I could go with any of these. I mean, for me, it's going to be one of the two legacy cell games, but I've played them both. Not everybody's played them. These are all really good. I don't know. <laughs> it's tough for me, too. I really liked our playthrough of XCOM, but part of that's because I really like the XCOM video game. So I feel like I'm not the most you know clear judge of that, but they're all really Excellent. I'm, I'm also just a, such a sucker for co-op games. And I was like, yep, I would like to have a shelf that had those games on them. Yeah. <laughs> Put them all there. It's, it's tough, too, though, because they're all innovative in their own way. Like, none of these games is just like, it's yes. a co-op with a new story and some new fun stuff or little tweaks. It's like they're all very unique and very affecting game experiences. So I guess, honestly, I feel like it's just going to be whichever game's been played the most is probably going to end up winning this category because... Like, a lot of people aren't going to vote for Pandemic Legacy because they haven't played it yet. A lot of people aren't going to vote for Time Stories because they haven't played all of the different expansions for that, or maybe they haven't finished it yet. Um, XCOM's going to have its detractors because it's an app. Mysterium's a little lighter. I mean, who knows which one's going to win, but it's they're all really good. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think we've seen a year like this previously where you've just had so many amazing co-op games that were so radically different from each other. Yeah, I think, so if I were voting, I would probably go for Time Stories, I'll admit. Just because I think the okay. uh, the way they handled time travel in that game, the way that uh, this the way they handled everything is so special and and somewhat unique. Uh, and while there's you know some cleverness, I mean, Pandemic Legacy, Pandemic existed, Legacy existed, smush them up. I mean, yes, it's a brilliant game, <laughs> but just smush them up, right? Combining two known elements seems somewhat less creative, right, than what happened with Time Stories, at least from my point of view, right? Whereas this very novel take on how to have a cooperative game function. So that's that's going to be my, my vote. I don't know if it's likely to win, but if I were on the council voting for it. All right, well, the next category is Best Family Games, and the nominees in this category is Code Names, Flick 'em Up, Lanterns, The Harvest Festival, Mysterium, and New York 1901. Flick them mm. up. Yeah. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> hard flick them up. Yeah, like 1901's I mean, great. Mysterium's great. But flick them up's awesome. Yeah, it's tough, though, because I've I've played all of these except for Lanterns. And I've played 
at least two of them with the family and everything was great. And I think all these are awesome. Flick them up though. It was a raucous good time. Um, you just flicking stuff across the table and knocking things over. And it doesn't really matter if you follow the rules quite on point. Codenames is a little more frustrating. It depends on what the age level of your family is, I guess. Um, and New York 19 is just kind of one of your classic ticket to ride style family games. So, yeah, I mean, I could say it's going any way. I would agree on Flick'em Up just because I, I have it and I love playing it with everybody. Um, I feel like most dexterity games would kind of fall into that for my family, though. So it's I'm super biased here. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of good games. And once again, I think this is going to be known as the year of just innovative games, even within its own category. I know Codenames is such a big draw for a lot of people as being kind of like, I wouldn't say a generic party game. It's kind of an extraordinary party game. But one of the games that probably has not gotten a lot of press was Lanterns. I actually got this on Kickstarter. And what really makes it a good family game is you're basically playing a tile with these colored lanterns. And based upon where you play it, everyone gets a card. So it kind of has a, a way to keep everyone engaged throughout the game. It's got simple gameplay. By the end of it, you're actually seeing this whole beautiful lantern kind of configuration. And... Pretty much anyone can play it. You're just you're just trying to make sets. So some really solid games there. Although I will always say that whether it's Mysterium or Clue, I always find it really odd that we have family games that basically start out with there's been a murder and you have to figure out by what method was the person murdered. And you know, you know, it could be a wrench, it could be a gun or a knife or choke to death. I'm like, that doesn't really seem like a family game to me. And yet, here we go again. All right, so next we have Best Game Artwork nominees. And we're looking at Above and Below, Ashes, Rise of the Phoenix Born, The Grizzled, Mysterium, and Time Stories. Oh, uh, this is a tough one, too. Uh, three of them jump out to me. Above and Below, Time Stories, and Mysterium. I'm not sure which one I like best. I have a feeling that it will go to either Mysterium or uh, Time Stories, because they're both represented in multiple categories. So, sure. you know, you can always be like, well, I'm not going to pick uh, Mysterium for family games, but I want to give it something, so let's give it art, sort of thing. Yeah, hmm. I could see that. I mean, Ashes has some pretty fantastic artwork, and the graphic design in the cards is pretty amazing, too. I could see that one picking it up as well. I mean, anytime you have a that kind of card game and the artwork, people don't really think about it too much, but it is really pretty to look at while you're playing. But the artwork is integral to the game in several of these, and I yes. think that's where you really have to look. Like in Time Stories, pieces of the artwork, both on the front and backs of cards, are important to how you play it. Like that's how integral it is, and it's really good. And if it wasn't, the game would not work. So that's that's one of those ones where I have to lean in that way just because it makes the game. It makes part of the game. Yeah, I would go along with that too. Ashes, probably any other year, wins this category outright. But the fact that Time Stories and also Mysterium have incorporated their artwork into the gameplay so deeply that the art really is the game. Whereas Ashes, it's beautiful artwork, but it really doesn't do much for you. And I'll also say for Mysterium too, it's not just a card. You're, literally, the box itself, all the pieces part of it, the rule book, there's so much art in Mysterium that you're just you really do get a sense of the theme and the world building that's doing there. So once again, another great year of uniquely different, innovative type of artwork and not your usual like 
fantasy versus fantasy versus fantasy. Each of these games are, you know, well worthy of an award. All right, so the next category, best game expansion nominees. And we're looking at Cult Express, Horses and Stagecoach, Five Tribes, The Artisans of Nagal, Roll for the Galaxy, Ambition, Russian Railroads, German Railroads, and Ticket to Ride, Map Collection, Volume 5, United Kingdom, and Pennsylvania. All right, guys, let's not give away too much about our final feature, but what do you guys think? Roll uh, for the Galaxy Ambition. No, <laughs> it's not that. <laughs> I mean, Roll for the Galaxy Ambition is actually very good, so I, 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 I wouldn't yes. be upset if that one won at all. But for me, it's either German Railroads or the Ticket to Ride Map Pack Volume 5 longest title in any of these. Um <laughs> Okay, German. Well, it's win that category. For yeah, sure. it's already won. Uh, German railroads. First off, fixes pretty much the fundamental problem with Russian railroads, which is a game I love, but had a hard time getting to the table because people were tired of it. It randomizes setup enough that you can't solve the game. It also adds a solo mode and a new module that really kind of spices things up a little bit. Very, very good expansion there with the three different modules, which are all very good. Ticket to Ride. The this map collection, in my opinion, is one of the best ones. And the UK map in particular adds a level of strategy to the game that doesn't exist in Ticket to Ride in a lot of other areas. So that honestly, I feel like it's probably gonna go that way just because I play this by far the most of any of these. And people are still asking me to bring it back. So loving that one a lot. Uh but German Railroad's also very good. Roll for the Galaxy Ambition also very good. So it's a good it's a good pack. Yeah, a lot of good expansions, but I think like Anthony said, German Railroads fixes the base game. Not that the base game was bad, it was just that it was a little too on the rails, eh, you know. Uh so it was a little locked in. This kind of opens the game up to a lot more options, a lot more fun. All right, next category. Best new designer and the nominees are between two cities, New York 1901, Stockpile, Time Stories, and Tides of Time. All right, guys, what are you guys thinking on this one? I like Between Two Cities, but that may be biased. I've just felt that Between <laughs> Two Cities was such a cleanly well-designed game. I mean, how many games do you know that can scale from two to seven without skipping a beat? And mm -hmm. it's, it's just a fantastically sure. well-designed game. I mean, it, there's nothing extra. There are no imbalances that I'm aware of. It flows smoothly. It's clean, efficient, and everything that I take to be a hallmark of excellent design. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with that. We actually broke this out at my game night the other night. Two separate copies because we had just the quite a, a little bit of an awkward number of people with a couple of newbies, and it was a little early. And the game only takes 15 minutes to play with seven people. That's ridiculous. Like, no game can do that. It's a little on the light side, obviously, because it only takes 15 minutes to play, but you can also play it multiple times back to back. Very, very good. Time stories, though, man, like the mind that that must have come from, like you got to give that credit, especially the number of modules they have coming out of that. And Tides of Time, that's a cute little game, but it's actually, it's got a lot going on with it. And there's expansions coming out that kind of add some new and interesting features. A lot of really good new stuff here, um, which I can say that I own the majority of. So that tells you these are all very good. Yeah, not to, you know, beat the drum any further, but innovative games. I mean, Between Two Cities, any other year would have this category hands down. Time Stories is such a gutsy game for a new designer to kind of put out there. I remember when, you know, word of this game first came out, everybody was condemning it. Like, you know, it's one of, another one of these throwaway games and no one's going to play it. And it's got these weird, you know, time plays and, 
you know, it just takes too long and it's or it could be too short or the numbers of players and it and it was it was condemned before it got out there and it's doing so well. It's such a surprise and you know, the designer deserves so much credit there and the publisher as well to put that game out. All right, let's get to some big categories. Best game of the year nominees for 2015. Now, this is going to be pretty large, so so hang on here for a second. We're looking at Seven Wonders Duel, Blood Rage, Codenames, Elysium, The Gallerist, Mysterium, Pandemic Legacy, Time Stories, The Voyages of Marco Polo, and Roll for the Galaxy. All right. You guys strapped in? What do you guys think? Hmm. Yeah, right? It's For me, it's either <laughs> Blood Rage, Time Stories, or Roll for the Galaxy. So there's a three-way there. <laughs> <laughs> that's a it's it's a rough year man it's a rough year it is rough yeah and just oh man i'm like i'm trying to think of what i nominated here but it was like it was the same toss i don't remember yeah i i feel like i threw voyages of marco polo in there because i wanted it represented i don't think it's gonna win but it is probably my favorite euro of, oh no it's definitely my favorite euro of the year it's one of my favorite games of the year but yeah blood rage marco polo or time stories probably for me um pandemic legacy strongly in the mix it's tough i mean each of these games kind of owns its own little area i don't know it's once again innovative 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 any other year these games are winning i don't know codenames is and elysium is a little light for me the gallerist is a little clunky you know uh pandemic legacy you really gotta love pandemic to want to play through that many missions Blood Rage does so many things right. Time Stories. Roll for the Galaxy, man. They they simplified an already great game with Race for the Galaxy, but it loses none of its charm. And The Voyages of Marco Polo is just surprisingly such a an innovative Euro game that really kind of welcomes such a wide crowd. I mean, there's just so many good choices here. All right, we'll have to kind of hold on and see what works out there. Talking about games from the past, how about uh, Best Game Reprint nominees? We're looking at El Grande Big Box Edition, Fury of Dracula 3rd Edition, Mission Red Planet, Stronghold 2nd Edition, and Through the Ages, A New Story of Civilization. All right, boys, old school, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, this is one where I actually have to play some of these. Um, I've only played Mission Red Planet, which I thought was a fantastic reprint. So for now, it's that, but I've heard very good things about all these. So this is one of those ones where I have to hit the table a little bit more before I have an opinion. (laughs) Yeah, this is uh, pretty much exactly the same thing Anthony was saying. I think I've only played Mission Red Planet, so that one, I guess. I've gotten a chance to play a lot more of these, and... Honestly, it's got to be the El Grande Big Box Edition for several reasons, especially the fact that I kept telling Drew it was coming out this year, and it actually came out this year. So uh, I owe the uh, Board Gaming Gods a a big thanks, and uh, it's probably why Drew's on the episode this week, because he was worried about talking about this yet again. Uh, But nonetheless, these other games were on some level available, although Mission Red Planet was in the need of a reprint, but El Grande was a much older game that you couldn't just you just couldn't find it really much anywhere. So um all outstanding games in their own right and the reprint makes it better across the board. Uh I think as Anthony said, Mission Red Planet, it does clear up some things that the first version didn't do you know quite so well fury of dracula kind of straightens some things out same thing with stronghold um el grande is just a a nice nice addition and uh 
really some really solid games this year. All right, let's talk about best game theming nominees. This is one of our favorite topics to talk about all the time. And uh, let's talk about our, uh, you know, Dark Horse candidate. <laughs> when we recently did our uh, March Board Game Madness, that was Baseball Highlights 2045, Blood Rage, Food Chain Magnet, Pandemic Legacy, and Time Stories. Let me just say, first off, we nailed this. <laughs> oh, my God. I know. This is like all of our finalists, <laughs> except for Pandemic Legacy, it which is. we didn't even allow into the thing. Yes. I'm impressed with us. <laughs> I know. We should be. <laughs> I'm glad that the industry is listening. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, these are all these are all really great games. The theme is is thick and rich on all of these, and uh, you can't really go wrong. I mean, isn't isn't that what we should be saying about this? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, I think for pure theme, I'm going to go with Time Stories. Sure. But yeah, I think I think it has a slight it? edge over everything else. But they're all fantastic. I think Pandemic Legacy is the weakest theme. But yeah, I mean. We definitely made our opinion pretty clear in a long and arduous and angering me with some of the games that were selected. Um, <laughs> uh, the bracket just two, three months ago. And Time Stories sure. won for us, so spoiler alert. Yeah, I mean, Baseball Highlights 2045, for that game to be still kind of on the radar is really impressive because sports-based board games usually doesn't get a lot of love. And this game is a little odd, a little different. And then the fact that it's sticking around and doing so well, especially in the theming category, is amazing. All right, next category, best party games. So we have Codenames, Mafia de Cuba, CS Files, Mysterium, and Two Rooms in a Boom. I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I just don't go to enough parties. Mysterium's a great game for a group, but it's not really a party game. Like... You're not going to get the party started by breaking out Mysterium. It's You're saying a party really doesn't get going when you talk about someone being murdered? Maybe it can <laughs> be if people are actually talking about it, but right, the ghost just sits there quietly handing out symbols and everyone, you know, there's a little bit of debate and that sort of thing. Likewise, code names, right? There's not uh-huh. actually a whole lot of talking happening. Sure. And I feel like a, a really, like, any game that's very quiet does poorly as a party game in my my view sure yeah i don't know i mean i'm gonna go i guess i lean codenames just because it's one of the few i've played and we play it a lot in my game group but i agree it ends up being a little too quiet just because the people giving the clues take so long and you have to be so quiet during that part of the game like once that's done and people are guessing it does get a little more interactive but that's maybe 40% of the game, 30% of the game. So that makes it a little tougher. Yeah, it's always hard to figure out what type of party they're talking about. I think Daniel's exactly right. If you're looking for a game that's really going to get a party going, maybe Two Rooms in a Boom or Mafia de Cuba, if you're looking for a game that kind of fits with everybody and that's the kind of party game thing you're looking for, obviously that's code names. Mysterium is something I really enjoyed and you can get like eight people playing that game and that's a, that's a lot of fun. So... Yeah, this is the odd category this year, I think. So, but uh, not not any bad games, though. So that's a good thing. All right. Best small publisher. And we're looking at Between Two Cities, Burglar Brothers, Champions of Midgard, Lanterns, The Harvest Festival, and Stockpile. All right, guys. What do you think? Who's who's the, the small champion out there? Between Two Cities. Okay. Yes. Stonemaier Games is amazing. 
they are one of the best publishers out there, not just small publishers. And, sure. you know, big, big things are coming soon, too. So, yeah, with, uh, with Scythe <laughs> about to finally come out for those of us who backed it. So uh, yes. I think it's it's got to be Stonemaier Games. Yeah, I mean, I think this might be the last year that they can actually be eligible for that. I can't remember exactly what the, the rules are there. It's number of games, I think, but... That's a great one. And it was the first time they went outside of house and got someone else's design. So I thought that was pretty cool. Sure. Um, Tim Fowers is doing some pretty cool stuff, though, too. Burgle Brothers is a fun little game. And then Champions of Midgard kind of came out of nowhere as just this pretty solid thematic, you know, worker placement game that I actually quite enjoy. So and as Chris mentioned, Lanterns earlier, you know, that's kind of a little off the radar. So lots of good stuff here. I would, you know, be fine with a lot of these. Um, I would definitely lean between two cities, too, though. I like that. Yeah. I, I, same here. I also got, I also played Stockpile, which is also a great game. So this is this is a really a solid year for small publishers and, and new designers. So that's really great to see that our industry is really pumping out some really solid product from new people, and it's not just, well, they'll come back next year and refine that. Like all of these games are really nicely solid games. All right, so let's talk about some strategy games. So the best game nominees in this category are. Blood Rage, Elysium, Pandemic Legacy, Roll for the Galaxy, and The Voyages of Marco Polo. Marco Polo, Marco Polo. Uh, <laughs> Marco. Polo, please. <laughs> this is my call to the other voters. Please, Marco. This, it's not going to win the other category it was in. Give it this one. Sure. Roll for the Galaxy is a refinement of an existing system. Pandemic Legacy, sure. existing system. Blood Rage, you could even argue existing system. Also, it's kind of in the middle on strategy. Elysium, I love, but it's not quite as heavy as the rest of these. No. Voyages of Marco Polo. Huh? <laughs> I think Blood Rage. A I, lot I of think... fast back and forth, changing battlefield constantly. I think Blood Rage has a lot of things that make strategy games strong, right? The need to sure. respond to changing environments, the presence of lots of paths to victory, and it doesn't hurt that it's also just a beautiful game. Yeah, I think you're right, and I'll be fine with that. But also Marco Polo is cool. This was an area that I brought up to Tom because I know that every year he does the best strategy game. And I, and I always feel like a lot of Euro games are le- being left out of the mix because typically when we're talking about best strategy game, we're also talking about game that has the best tactics. And sometimes tactics and strategy, you don't find both of those things in the same box. And I really wanted to have a separate category for this. Tom felt like people wouldn't get it. Um, I mean, Blood Rage is amazing. And and even Elysium, too. And even Roll for the Galaxy. But I feel like those games don't involve long-term strategy as much as Marco Polo does. Even Pandemic Legacy, you're playing small game to small game. There's not really a lot of thought way, way, way in advance. So um, if I'm going to pull for one, I'm going to pull for Marco Polo. Because you really do have to play long-term in that type of game. All right, so best two-player games. We have Seven Wonders Duel, Ashes Rise of the Phoenixborn, Baseball Highlights 2045, Raptor, and out of nowhere, Risk Star Wars Edition. Dude, these are all so good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Surprisingly. Once again, more innovative stuff. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think Seven Wonders... See, the thing is... It's tough with Seven Wonders Duel because it is an existing game where they made, they just tweaked it enough to make it work with two people. But it's really good. Sure. It's a really good game. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Whereas Baseball Highlights, and I feel like we had this exact conversation on our theme episode. We did. <laughs> Baseball Highlights 
is a completely new game. It's very innovative, and it is also a lot of fun. Plus, it has all those little decks, and very expandable. I would lean between those two. I really enjoy Seven Wonders Duel, and it's easier to get to the table. Um, but Baseball Highlights is it's just straight out of his head, which is amazing, because it's such a good game. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to lean towards Baseball Highlights, just because... It's like a cool game. It's so weird, but it's so awesome. Uh, so it's it's got to take something home. I, I, sure. I'm I'm hoping for baseball highlights. Yeah, Raptors are another interesting game. It's kind of asymmetrical gameplay. One player is playing as the Raptors, the other one's as a scientist, and that's pretty innovative. Um, but I got to be honest, I've been waiting for a really solid two-player Seven Wonders game forever. And they delivered here, so I'm really happy with that. All right, most innovative game. And that's kind of funny because that's all we've been talking about. So let's see if there's actually games that are really, truly innovative in a world of innovative games, at least for 2015. So we are looking at 504, Codenames, Mysterium, Time Stories, and XCOM The Board Game. All right, guys. Innovative. Ooh, damn. <laughs> it's a new word we haven't been talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think... So here's the thing on this. If we're going to talk about the game that's the most creative and different and does the most things that nothing else has ever done before, it's got to be 504 because that's just ridiculously ambitious. But this is not the most ambitious game. It's the most innovative. And I think if you're going to say innovative, it has to be something that other people could look at and be like, all right, how can I build on that? How can I do something new? Because this is a totally new area of gaming. And if you say sure. that way, I think 504 is almost disqualified because I can't see anybody else coming along and trying to build that. Time Stories, I can easily see people trying to build that kind of game. Honestly, I see that being a segment of the industry moving forward where you have these modules to expand a game and kind of tell a story over time. I think that's going to be a huge part of the of the uh, industry moving forward. And then XCOM, I don't think we've seen it yet, but I, I'm sure we're going to see a lot more apps coming out. Uh, I'm going to talk about a game or in a new way to play a game under my uh, acquisition disorder coming up that is, I feel like, the direction of board games moving forward, too. And XCOM kind of is pioneering that, at least here in the U.S. So for me, it's between those two in terms of innovation. But 504 is by far the most ambitious game of 2015. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I think for me, it's going to be time stories. I like XCOM a lot, but other than the app, it's a pretty standard a cooperative game it just has its own way of generating uh, a sort of a computerized way of generating events rather than a card deck right so I, I think i'm gonna have to go with time stories being the most innovative game because the way they handle what they handle is pretty unique yeah i'm gonna go along with you daniel on that i mean code names has kind of been done a lot of other ways mysterium is clue plus dixit which is still innovative but maybe not as much uh xcom i've seen apps and games it, it's okay it's just it doesn't blow me away 504 as anthony said i mean i understand why it's here but i i think that it loses something in the gameplay i would say that the the concept is innovative the construction the design the the technical genius that goes into this is is amazing, but I don't know if you know random parts thrown onto a game board with a certain rule set is necessarily innovative. Uh, you know, it just seems like variance. So yeah, I think Time Stories is worthy of that award in a really really deep and and rich kind of year of just quality and innovative games. So 
That is Dice Tower's award nominees for 2015. And we'll be following up with you guys later once Tom Vassell announces the winners. And we'll talk a little bit about who won and uh, how we felt about that. So if you haven't gotten a chance to play any of these games yet, please go out and play them. Let us know what you think. Uh, You can feel free to kind of send us comments and influence us a little bit. (laughs) And uh, I I think you're going to be happy with all of these games. And now, our Acquisition Disorders. Acquisition Disorders? That's crazy! Only needs the base game, nothing else but the base game. The base game and the expansion, see? Nothing else. Just the base game and the expansion and the promos. The base game and the expansion and the promos and, of course, the upgraded components. Why wouldn't you have the upgraded components? So the base game, the expansion, the promos, and the upgraded All right, components. so there's been some great games coming out, and we want to talk about what acquisitions we're really interested in getting involved with. All right, Anthony, why don't you start us off this week? All right, so I just mentioned this when we were talking about XCOM, and I'm interested to see how apps kind of come into games. And I've been saying all along that I think we're going to see more apps come out in the next couple of years because they take a long time to develop, much longer probably than the typical board game because you're building software to go with it. But one thing I found very interesting, and I'm not at all surprised by this, but I'm kind of excited by it, is the new Descent app from Fantasy Flight, uh, Road to Legend. So what they've done is they've created this app that replaces the Overlord. And that, I think, is genius because the number one reason I never picked up Descent, despite how amazing it looked and how many different modules there were and how beautiful the miniatures were, and you all know how I am about those miniatures, is that the Overlord makes it really hard to get a group together. You really have to be able to plan it. You have to organize it. You have to schedule it. And just the way my life is, that's really hard. I go to game nights, and whoever's there is there, and that's it. Um, you throw an app in there and you could pretty much get any group together as long as you know the rules well enough and that app will help run the game. More importantly, it makes it so I could play Descent by myself, which to some people may not sound that much fun. To me, that's amazing because I play a lot of games by myself. Um, so this is actually, and it actually made me a little upset because I have all this Imperial Assault stuff sitting here and that's the game I chose over Descent because it was one that had the two-player variant, which I still think is very awesome. But it also has that kind of overlord problem where you need somebody to play the Imperials. You need someone to kind of run the game. I think, I'm hoping at least, that this kind of comes along for Star Wars in the near future. But in the meantime, I'm seriously considering at least checking out Descent. Um, Probably not picking it all up, but maybe seeing if someone has a copy or if the local game store is doing some demos of this, which they were last weekend. Just because it looks so cool, I want to see how it runs. The whole idea of replacing this all within the app sounds so awesome. And I know what what it allows you to do is just kind of punch in all the stuff that you own and it will randomize it or not randomize it. It will build the scenario based on what you have available, what miniatures you have, what expansions you have, and kind of build with that. So it it doesn't like require you to go buy things to fit the scenarios it has. It'll work with what you already have, which I think is genius. It's a really interesting way to expand the life of an existing game that was probably going to start you know, tapering off, uh, especially because of Star Wars. And I think it's something we'll see in other games that maybe are starting to taper off a little bit, or maybe new games that this will give it a wider audience. So that's Descent Road to Legend. I'm very excited about it. I want to give it a shot. All right, so that's mine uh, for this month. Daniel, what about you? What you looking at? Uh, well, right now I'm looking at a game on Kickstarter called This War of Mine. Uh, and so this is actually a board game version of a video game. Uh, and what's interesting about this war of mine, both the video game and the board game, is that it takes place in a setting of an urban warfare, modern urban warfare. But you are not soldiers. 
You are everybody else. So you take the role of a small group of survivors who are doing what they can to survive in a war-torn city, dealing with unknown hostile forces who may, if they're not careful, see you as a threat, even though you're just a civilian moving around, dealing with famine, disease, dealing with the psychological stress of constant bombardment. Uh, for this reason, it, it might be kind of wrong to say it's a fun game, um, but both the video game and the board game do something very powerful, and they have a very powerful message, and something I think that is unique about games as an art form is that their participatory component allows them to communicate something of what it's like to be in a situation. Now, of course, this is going to be nothing like actually being in a war zone, but some you know vague shade of what that kind of experience must be like. Uh, and for that sort of, I guess, educational purpose, in a sense, this is what an educational game should be, right? It's one that helps you get into the mindset or uh, get into a mindset that you would never really get into in your everyday life, probably, uh, hopefully. Uh, so that's the one I'm looking at right now, which is this war of mine. It is a very interesting and ambitious project and one of the very few games out there that i think actually might deserve to be called educational chris how about you well we talked earlier about our love of everything stonemeyer and one of the games that i'm highly anticipating that currently is kind of going underneath the radar is charterstone it's a village building legacy game designed by jamie stegmeyer and in particular what I tend to love is Euro games that have some overarching theme or plot, some sort of kind of element to it that kind of really draws you into it. So not a completely dry Euro game, but a Euro game nonetheless. So what we're looking at Charterstone is a Euro game with a legacy element. So it's amazing. And uh, in particular, this game is very much about building this town from scratch. So... It plays one to six players, and the, each game can last, let's say, 20 to 60 minutes. And what you're basically doing is building up the different places in which you can place your workers. So once again, your Euro worker placement element. But you're going to have these cards with stickers. And basically, by unlocking these different buildings, you'll be peeling a sticker off a card and actually placing it on the board. So unlike Legacy with risk or pandemic you're not destroying things so much you're actually building the board from the ground up and by the time you finish the game you'll actually have a full game board that you can continue to play and it won't be just kind of like you know the end of the world kind of thing it'll actually be a great euro game that you've actually created yourself so i'm really looking forward to this there isn't a great deal of information i know that jamie is still in the design process with this and doing some testing of this game and i really want to find a way to actually jump in on this because i just want to throw my stickers down and you know help build up this kind of world because one of the things that i really love doing and our friend dave actually mentioned this earlier is i don't know why it is that euro games kind of connect with me so much but you know when i'm dropping a worker to kind of collect lumber or mine stone I really feel like those people actually have a real task and it has a real theme. Or if you're looking at Agricola, they're really farming out there. So to be able to actually create a town with the resources that I want to draw and the town that I want to build is outstanding. And I can't wait to get my hands on Charterstone. 
at the table with BGA. All right, so for this week, BGA's got some great games to the table. So what we want to do is tell you what games we're playing and let you know if the game is a buy and that you should go out right now and pick that game up. If it's a play and if you happen to see it at a table, jump right in. If it's a dodge and you just kind of step back away from the table. Or if it's a total burn and the game is not worthy to be in our board game industry. So with that said, Anthony, why don't you start us off and let us know what got to your table this week. Okay, so if you do anything related to board games, you've probably already seen this because there were ads everywhere for about six weeks before it came out. Um, that's the new Days of Wonder game, Quadropolis, uh, from Francois Gandone. Making make sure I say that right. I probably didn't anyways. This is the newest game from Days of Wonder, and if you know anything about the hobby, you know Days of Wonder only releases a game once every year or so, if we're lucky. And it's been about... 18 months since the last one when five tribes came out. So it's been a while and there's a good reason for that. They're very picky about the games they make and they go through a lot of testing and development. And it shows because a game like Quadropolis, which seems so simple is so much fun. It's so it's just elegant. It's the best word to use for this game. It's a tile laying city building game. You know, it's very, it's on the light end. It's good for introducing, you know, introducing new players to the hobby but it also has a bit of strategy to it, and you can really kind of get into it and think about it in a little more depth. You know, I like to say if you like games like Alhambra, it's good for you. If if you're trying to teach people who are new to the hobby suburbia, maybe start with this instead. How the game works is you're going to have four rounds in the classic mode, and in each of those rounds, you're going to pull out 25 tiles and put them on the center board. And each player is going to take turns playing one of their four architects. And they're numbered one through four. You place one of those architects on one of the rows or columns of the board, and you take the tile that the number on the architect says. So if if you play your number three architect, then you're going to take the third tile in whatever row or column that you put. It sounds complicated, but it's actually very simple. What happens after you take that is you're going to put down this marker called the urbanist on that spot, and nobody can place or nobody can take a tile from either the column or the row that the urbanist is in. So it's a good way you can block people, but it also forces people to kind of move around the board a little bit and to diversify their strategy enough where you can't just be like, I want all buildings or I want all parks. Um, from a scoring perspective, it's like a lot of other city building games. There's each different type of tile is scored in a different way. So the towers you build vertically and they're worth points based on how many floors you have. The parks are worth points based on how many towers they're next to the harbors are worth points based on how many are in a row the shops are based on how many people are in them i guess they're factories as well that produce energy they're based on how many harbors they're next to so as you can see there's a lot of different ways to score here there's also an expert mode to the game that adds a fifth round as well as a couple of new types of buildings including office buildings and monuments um honestly i think the game is perfect in the classic mode it takes about 45 minutes to an hour to play and it's very smooth and easy to teach it takes maybe five or ten minutes to teach the expert mode adds just enough extra stuff to it that it slogs down a little bit the only way i'd really play that i think is with like two players and it's not really an ideal two-player game so just because of the tight nature of it and you just end up artificially blocking things if i'm playing with three or four i would stick with the classic it's fun it's quick we played a couple times in a row the last couple times I brought it out and it's very accessible. I think this will be a new kind of entry level ish game that I bring with me most weeks to game night because it's it's that good. And I like city building games in general. So I like having one at different levels 
you know, to, to work from. Some people have asked me, you know, this or suburbia. And I'm like, both, because they're very different situations. End of the night, lighter, easier to play game. Absolutely this. Maybe even Dice City is another great one. Suburbia is, you know, it's those, that's for your gamers group. So for me, this is an absolute buy. I love this game. I've had fun every time playing it. Even ran through it a couple times by myself just to try different strategies. I think it's going to hit the table a lot. And it's, you know, it's rare that you get that new kind of entry-level gateway-ish type of game that just hits a table a lot. And I think this is going to be, at least for me, it's going to be that game. So if you haven't tried it out yet, Quadropolis, it is the newest one from Days of Wonder. I'm excited to see what they add to it. I know they're already testing expansions. I saw some pictures on Twitter. Um, so it, it should be a game with some legs to it. And it should be a lot of fun. So Quadropolis, that's a buy from me. Daniel, what about you? What, what are you playing lately? Well, uh, recently I've been playing uh, a game called The Sprawl with my role-playing game group. Those of you who listen frequently know that I'm a very big fan of games based off of the system called Apocalypse World, which is a very narrative-driven, action-driven sort of role-playing game with a relatively minimal uh, tool set, or I guess rule set, maybe a better way to put it. Uh, and this game follows that tradition pretty well, but I do think it makes some dangerous deviations. Now, The Sprawl is a cyberpunk-themed version of Apocalypse World, and you have the option to decide where in cyberpunk society you want to be. The general idea is that you're dealing with a world where corporations have taken over the Earth, governments are tiny, if still there, and have are pretty much just puppets for various corporate entities, and you are trying to make a living in this environment. The team that I'm playing with decided we're going to play something like fringe operators. That is, we do work with corporate contracts, and most of us come from corporate backgrounds, but none of us are currently full-time corporate employees. In fact, most of us are on the run from somebody. Now, one thing the game does very much right is it allows you to build into your character, in fact, requires you to build into your character uh, connections to the world. You can avoid this by just choosing to make all of your cyberware, that is your cybernetic augmentation, substandard. But if you decide to get anything newish, the only way to have that be afforded is by going under the knife for a corporate contract, meaning somebody owns you now, or you stole it from them, so they're hunting you down. Um, so for instance, my character is hunted by one group and owned by another, partially because the group that owns him helped break him out from a compound owned by the group that's hunting him. Uh, and so he works as a freelancer for the group that owns him now. So you get these really complex and nasty corporate webs forming, which is really nice for a cyberpunk-themed game. I do think that the way this game ho handles its, uh, its statistics are a little awkward for an Apocalypse World game. There seems like there's at least one value too many that they could really narrow it down a bit more. But that's a relatively minor complaint. There's also some imbalance between the books in terms of, so usually you're able to take moves from other play uh, playbooks, which are essentially other classes. So you can take certain of their abilities. It's kind of like multi-classing uh, in a traditional role-playing game. Uh, and in this game, several classes, almost all of their moves depend on having a prior move. That's like their basic move, which makes sense in the idea of like you're expanding on your basic skill set. But it does mean that essentially you can't take moves from that book. It just becomes too awkward, too unwieldy. You can't really do anything with it. However, all of that said, it has been a really fun game and made some really intense moments. It's a system where in one mission, a teammate betrayed us and tried to sell the, uh, the person that we kidnapped to another buyer. 
uh, without consulting in of any of us. And we're still working together because in the scope of the way this world works, that's the kind of thing you have to be able to shake off because no one really is to be trusted in a world like this. So for making the world right, for making this feeling of cyberpunk, the sprawl is excellent. I do think there are some mechanical issues, some things that could be refined, but it's definitely worth looking at. So for me, if you like role-playing, and especially if you're fond of the Apocalypse World uh, system, but you want a cyberpunk theme, this is definitely a play. The Sprawl is definitely a play, and it might be a buy, but I would play it first just to get a feel for it. So that's my At the Table for this week. How about you, Chris? Well, this week I was able to get two great games to the table that I want to talk about really quickly, because I think they're games that you really should know about. So first up, Stockpile. Now, we talked about this a little bit on the Dice Tower Awards, so this is definitely a high-quality game that a lot of people feel like should get some serious table time. But because it's generally just a stock market game and it's really condensed down to that single element, it really hasn't gotten a lot of play out there in the field. Now, Stockpile, as I said, since it's a simple stock market game, what you're basically looking at is six different stocks. So six different types of technology, innovation, and what you're going to be doing on your turn is you're going to get some inside information about one of the stocks, whether it's going to go up or it's going to go down. And then you're going to get two cards to play. Now, the two cards that you're going to get to play could be a number of different things. It could be actually stocks. It could be an action card that either moves up or moves down a market of your choice. Or it could actually be a card that costs you money in order to play stocks. So when you get these two cards, you're going to play one face up and one face down. Now, depending on the number of people, you're going to have piles set up and you're going to have initial cards set up. So maybe you are gearing up to collect a certain pile of cards. So you're putting a face down card that's really valuable. Or maybe there's a pile that's great and you want to throw a card down there that's going to cost the other players more money. So on your turn, what you're going to do is take your meeple, and then kind of like Amon Ray style, there is a little bidding market that starts at 1, goes 3, 6, 10, 15, 20, 25, and you're going to place your meeple there at the wager that you're making, and then someone can come in there and jump there, and then you got to kind of get bounced out, but you can bounce back if you want. So what you're trying to do is collect the stocks that are best based upon what the little market is doing up top. And if you do get those action cards, you can kind of play into the market. At the end of the round, everyone's going to reveal their inside information. It's going to shift the market. But before that happens, you could sell your stock or you could hold on to it because at some point, if you get past 10, the stock will actually split and you'll actually make more money for each stock that you have in your hand. You'll actually get double. So, you know, it's, 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 it has a little kind of engagement there. Do I hold on to it? I want to make sure it doesn't bottom out. And actually, in the games that I played, stocks did bottom out and were worthless. They do come back into play later, but whoever has that stock has lost that. Now, this game is kind of, like I said, it's kind of boiled down to the stock market elements here. The artwork is good. It has a way of playing with special player powers where it kind of uses kind of American industrialists that kind of give you a, a special bonus here and there. It's a fun game. It's a solid game. I would recommend buying this game, but I want to warn you, it's a little lighter than most stock games out there. So if you are someone who enjoys a good Euro stock game, play it first just to see where the weight is because this is a little bit medium to the lightweight. 
but it does have some really good elements to it. You can kind of play this game with everybody. And uh, if the weight is right for you, I will say that this game is a buy. Uh, the second game that kind of fits that same situation is World's Fair 1893. Now, this is a beautiful game, and what you're actually looking at is a game that's depicting the World's Fair from 1893. And it does so by actually having this beautiful Ferris wheel in the middle, and then you have these little section boards that kind of highlight different areas of innovation from, from back then. The different cards that will come into play here are very similar. You're going to basically have, I guess what you would call kind of stock cards once again, because you're trying to do some set collection here. So beyond just the set collection, what you're also doing is placing influences in those areas. If you have the most influence in that area at the end of the round, you'll be able to take the cards that are piled up in that area. So you're collecting cards so that you're able to win that section. And then if you do win that turn, you'll be able to turn those cards in for these little chits. And these chits are once again another kind of set collection that will score you bonus points at the end of the game. There's also action cards that will actually move your little uh, cubes around the board that kind of, you know, interact with your influence in the game. And there's also just some straight up point cards that if you collect the most, you're getting a lot of points. This game, once again, is a light to medium weight game. I could see families playing this game and not getting too heavy into the, the kind of the game mechanics. Or this game could be good for gamers, too, because it does have some thought kind of process here where where do I place my influence? I want to kind of win that area so that I can be able to play the cards. But yet at the same time, though that other area doesn't have a lot of cards, actually has a lot of action cards. So it does have some, you know, pretty serious tactical thought involved into this game. So once again, just like when I talked about stockpile this game is worthy of a buy but is on the lighter side so if you're looking for a game that could play with families up to gamers this game is worthy of a buy it's colorful it's light it plays fast and it's quite enjoyable and now bga's feature review so for this week's feature we took a listener suggestion and put together a feature that highlights the best and the worst of some gateway game expansions. Now, these expansions are not necessarily the greatest of all times. We've already done that episode, and they're not necessarily the worst of all time, but we wanted to let you know, as a consumer out there who loves these gateway games, what expansion should you pick up next, and what expansion should you wait until the very, very, very last possibility, and maybe only pick up if you're a true completionist. So with great thanks to Renee, let's talk about the best and worst gateway game expansions. So I'm going to start off here with one of my favorite games. That's Seven Wonders. Now, Seven Wonders has some outstanding expansions. But what I really feel like kind of civilization building is the Leaders expansion. Leaders just adds an additional card at each round. But it really makes you feel like you have this genius here who's helped guiding your civilization. It adds a little bit more to the gameplay. And it allows you to build a strategy instead of just worrying about pure tactics based upon the cards you get in your hand. It's an outstanding expansion, and I will not play Seven Wonders without leaders. Now, on the other side, the expansion that is not terrible, but is an expansion that I could kind of take or leave, and that would be Cities. 
Now, Cities offers some nice kind of interactive gameplay elements that typically are missing from Seven Wonders, but it's a little kind of hit everybody with attacks or, you know, borrow slash steal a technology. So it really doesn't add so much to the game. It doesn't slow it down so much, but it's a forgettable expansion. So that's my best and worst for Seven Wonders. Anthony, what about you? What's your best and worst for expansions? So we're going to start with the uh, the gateway of gateway games, Catan. Okay. And there are a lot of expansions here, some of them good, some of them bad. But I think one of the best ones and one of the ones that kind of transforms this game and takes it from gateway kind of to the next level is Cities and Knights. And this came, back, came out way back in 1998. Cities and Knights adds three new things to it. It adds commodities. So going beyond just the resources that you would normally get. And these come from certain spaces. It also adds, replaces the development cards with three different decks of cards based on those commodities. And then it adds the knights, which you can build along your roads. These kind of take place of the, take the place of the soldier cards, but also are important in defending uh, in case barbarians attack. People who defend successfully are rewarded. People who do not are hurt. Um, it basically takes Catan to the next level strategically and adds a little bit more depth to it. It does extend the game a little bit, but not exceptionally so. So if it's if you really like Catan, you're finding it hard to get to the table, you want a bit more of a strategy game, Cities and Knights is kind of the way to go. On the flip side of that is the five to six player extension, which is not the way to go. This is not, not the way to add more to Catan because it makes the game very, very long. It doesn't add anything new. It just adds the ability to play with more people and that alone creates a game of Catan that can take two, three plus hours. And it's not a game designed to take that long. It's supposed to be quick to medium. It's not supposed to be this epic long experience. There's a lot of good five or six player games out there that are at this weight level too. You don't need Catan to be five to six players. The five to six player extension, not necessary. Go with something else or improve Catan from the base level. Daniel, what about you? What would you say is uh, your first pick for best and worst? So I'm going to start off with a game that I talked about a while ago, and it's one of my favorite games we picked up over last Gen Con, which is the Dark Gothic game, which is a a sort of gothic horror-themed deck-building game. Uh, For me, the best one, the one you absolutely should pick up, is Colonial Horror. It adds a lot more difficulty to the game by accelerating the rate at which uh, the quote-unquote the, the shadows deck can fill and what the shadows deck does is essentially a counter towards loss one of the things that's nice about this game is you have to balance trying to beat the other player with trying to avoid letting the monster win and having the accelerated shadows deck makes that that threat of the monster winning much more realistic uh, in just the base game it's very easy to wipe the monster out and you don't really have to cooperate at all uh, so it does, you don't have to make those sorts of hard choices. Uh, the least valuable expansion here, I think, is Curse of the Werewolf, because it adds this whole new mechanic and a, a small set of cards, but if you shuffle them in, they get so diluted that they don't really do anything, and the new mechanic isn't terribly interesting. Uh, so it really just doesn't add to the game at all in any very significant way. So I would steer clear of Curse of the Werewolf, but make absolutely sure to pick up Colonial Horror if you're going to play Dark Gothic. Chris, what's your second entry on the list? So jumping back into pure gateway games, one of the best is Carcassonne. Now, if you know anything about Carcassonne, you know there's pretty much like a thousand expansions, both 
big boxes, and little, little tiny kind of boxes expansions. So one of the best expansions, and the one that I would recommend picking up first, would be Carcassonne, the Princess and the Dragon. Now, what's really interesting about this expansion is not only are you getting some really interesting dynamic meeples, but it adds a lot of interesting gameplay and kind of interactive gameplay. So when you got these volcano tiles coming out on the board, the dragon appears and is scaring the heck out of the other meeples, bouncing them out of spots, but not to worry, the princess is there. And also you have a kind of interactive kind of um, character here with the fairy that you're going to be able to score additional points. So it adds some new mechanics to an already great game. It adds a fantasy element to it that Carcassonne, at least the base tiles, could really use because they tend to be a little bland. It doesn't change gameplay up that much, but it does in a really good way. Now on the other side, kind of changing things up but not in a good way, would be Carcassonne Catapult. Now what's really odd about this game is not only do you get this cheap bamboo catapult that is throwing meeples onto a you know a Euro game, but you're also getting these really wacky kind of wide-eyed meeple tokens that are going to come into gameplay. It really doesn't fit with Carcassonne on any level. It really doesn't look good. It really doesn't play well because now you're adding kind of you know a different kind of tactile element where things are being thrown out there, and man, it's just a big mess. It's not fun. People kind of are scared from this expansion. And it's just really not necessary to add these crazy elements to an already great game. All right, Anthony, back to you. Yeah, so t- uh, next up is Ticket to Ride. Uh, it's another one of those ex- gateway games that I, I actually quite enjoy in all its many iterations. And I feel it's been expanded very well, actually. Most of the expansions for this are pretty good. My favorite, though, I think the best expansion, if you're discounting the 1910 cards, which should be in every box, is... The brand new map pack, which we just talked about with the Dice Tower Awards, the UK and Pennsylvania map. Both of these maps are fantastic. So that alone right there, that's awesome. We have two very good maps in the same expansion. Uh, The PA map adds stocks, which are always a very interesting part of train games. There's a whole world of stock-related train games you can go into. Um, This does it a very simple way where you just get stocks based on the routes you build, but it adds a lot where you're building routes both based on your tickets and the stocks that are available. And then the UK map adds technology, which is this fantastic idea. And again, not new to train games, but in Ticket to Ride, it really adds something. Where they've boiled it down to, you have to get different card upgrades using the wild locomotives before you can do certain things. You need the upgrades before you can build certain routes, before you can go into certain parts of the UK, um, before you can use ferries and a lot of other things. Plus, there are some more advanced technology you can, technologies you can use to kind of do um, extra things, get extra points, build routes in places someone else has already built a route, build two routes at a time, lots of cool stuff here. I've already picked this up and I've played it many, many times. It's frequently requested already. Uh, It turns Ticket to Ride into a different game, which I think is the role of an expansion to kind of give a game a second life, to build on it, to get open it up to new people. And it's done that very well. On the flip side is the... Small number of expansions, Days of Wonders released for Ticket to Ride that just don't work. And these are almost uniformly the ones that don't work are the ones that try to change the game in a fundamental way from what it's supposed to be. And the one that's still available that does this, and I was going to pick the Dice expansion, but the Dice expansion you can't actually find anymore, is Alvin and Dexter. This is the two little monster 
tokens that can be or that move around the board and you can't build roots where they happen to be sitting. And if they happen to be sitting in a place at the end of the game that matches your root tickets, they can decrease the value of those roots. You can move them, of course, but that requires discarding valuable locomotives throughout the game. Anyways, it just pulls away from the really the joy of the game in general, which is building the roots and kind of finding your way through there. There are any ways to get blocked in this game. There's no way to no reason to add an artificial block on top of that. I know some people like it because it makes it a little more combative, but can be very frustrating if you suddenly lose points or suddenly can't do something and you don't have the cards needed to get rid of them or to move them. So that's Alvin and Dexter. I don't think it's a great addition to the game because it kind of goes against the spirit of the game. For people who don't like the spirit of the game or who find this an interesting way to change that, it might be a different opinion. But for me, it's the weakest of the currently available Ticket to Ride expansions. Uh, Daniel, what about you? What's your next one? Well, my next one is something of a gateway game itself. So I'm talking about Smash Up here, which is a game where you combine different factions together to try to conquer various bases and win the game. Most of us, you've probably seen this game or played it before. If not, it's definitely one worth playing, probably one worth buying. Um, but so Smash Up, one of the big things that's nice about it is very expandable, right? You just throw in new factions and boom, expansion. And the best of these is the, I think, upcoming It's Your Fault expansion. Uh, one thing that's really great about this is that they allowed gamers to vote on what would go in, hence why it's your fault. And we all voted, so we were all kind of invested in the way this came out. And the It's Your Fault pack has dragons, mythic Greeks, sharks, and superheroes in it. Now, most of these sets, these expansion packs, are going to have four factions, just like the this one says on the box. But one of the things that's interesting about this is they have a secret, not-so-secret secret, fifth faction, Tornadoes. Because everyone's like, well, what about Sharknadoes? Well, now you can have Sharknadoes. Dragon Nados, Ghost Nados, all the kind of Nados you could ever want. So that's really cool. Uh, and it fits the sort of fun, silly theme very well. Uh, the least, my least favorite one of these, and the ones I think you can just skip, is the Cthulhu expansion, which I believe is titled actually the Obligatory Cthulhu set, uh, which is just, I hate this whole idea that you have to put Cthulhu in every game. So already I was against this. Uh, and it doesn't really fit the theme very well either, right? The game is very silly and being like, oh, and here's Cthulhu, kind of string. It also adds an entirely new mechanic that if you don't incorporate a way into your deck to defend against can cause some weird balance issues. So I think, generally speaking, the game is best if you just leave all the Cthulhu factions out. So I would, you know, pick up Smash Up and then pick up It's Your Fault as soon as it comes out and totally ignore the obligatory Cthulhu expansion. Chris, what's your third entry on this list? So with apologies to Dave, who's not on this episode, and our kind of big Dominion player, you got to talk about Dominion when you're talking about expansions. Now, what's really interesting about Dominion is that even though you pick up an expansion, it doesn't mean you have to play with all the sets. You can kind of pick and choose based upon what you want to kind of interact with at, on that gameplay. But that being said, there are some expansions that are a little bit better than the others, and some that add some complexity that the game probably doesn't need. So I'm going to start off with probably the most interesting expansion, at least as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and that would be Prosperity. Um, what you're particularly looking at here is the addition of colonies and platinums. Uh, but more particularly, you know, when you play Dominion, at least the base set, you're playing some very ordinary cards and some basic strategies come into play. But 
what I think kind of makes this the best expansion is that there are some amazing cards that come into this game. They're very over the top, but none of them are game breaking. Whereas some of the other expansions, based upon whatever their theme happens to be, can kind of really throw the game a certain way and the game is kind of locked into that chain. So the cards here add something amazing, but they don't break the game and they don't lock you into anything. Now on the downside, there really isn't a terrible kind of Dominion expansion, but one of the ones that I have the, probably the most problem with is Alchemy. Now when I get a chance to play Dominion with friends, this tends to be the one that everyone kind of pushes to the back and in particular because it offers a different type of currency and it really emphasizes action chains that are going to really take the game in a longer way. You're going to be playing this game, you know, thinking about, oh, I got to put this and then play this and play this, play this in order just to do anything. The games end up playing a lot longer. They're not good for new gamers, at least new Dominion gamers. And it's really kind of the expansion that is, you know, worthy of having but also probably in the back of your game box. So that's Dominion. How about you, Anthony? What's your last one? So the last one for me is Race for the Galaxy. And again, like Chris said for Dominion, there are no bad expansions for Race for the Galaxy. This is a very good game with a lot of very well-thought-out expansions. But there are a couple that I would consider must-buys and a couple that you could probably get away with not utilizing, uh, especially if you're going to pick up multiple expansions that just don't quite work as well. Um, first up, the one that I would say everybody should pick up, is, and that's the first one, uh, coincidentally, and that's The Gathering Storm. Now, I'm a little biased towards this one because it added solitaire rules uh, to the game, which are very good, by the way. And it's an interesting expansion because it doesn't actually add that many new cards. Um, what it does add, and all of these things are great, is the ability to add an additional player. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Here it does. Um it adds drafting rules if you only have two or three players, which is, I think, very important just because of the way a two-player game of this typically works. And it is a very good two-player game on its own, but it adds kind of that a different element to it. It also adds some blank cards for players to make their own cards. Now, I haven't actually seen anybody do this, but it's kind of a cool idea if you want to kind of tweak and play with the game itself. Um, along with four new start worlds, three six-cost developments, and a, a handful of other things that go into the game. It adds a lot of overall depth to the game and it shows that the designer knew what he wanted this game to be and was just kind of augmenting and growing and building on that because all these little tweaks work really well so the gathering storm is something that i leave in the box everything's mixed in there there's no reason to keep these things separate because it is just part of the game and that that's a good sign of a good you know early expansion to a game on the flip side is one of the later expansions and that's alien artifacts so some people don't love this one. I don't hate this one. The problem with this is that it's not really compatible with the earlier expansions. So you have to use it independently of those early expansions. So, you know, I have the Gathering Storm mixed in. I would probably have to pull that stuff out. It doesn't really work the same. And part of the reason for that is it adds a lot of new cards, um, adds a lot of different elements to it, and then it adds these orb cards. So there's 49 cards that are used to represent the alien orb, which players are both mapping and exploring. And you're getting these artifact tokens, and these can give you powers and victory points. Anyways, as you can tell, it changes the game a lot. Now, I don't necessarily have a problem with an expansion that changes a game from what it originally was. But in this case, if you are invested in Race for the Galaxy, 
or you just have all your stuff mixed in already, or if you just like the way that game plays, this is a very different way to play the game. It's a fundamentally different game almost in the end. Some people like that, again, similar to, you know, discussion of Ticket to Ride. Some people don't like the original way the game plays and like this kind of tweak to it. I don't necessarily find that as enjoyable. I like the way the game plays and I like augmenting it, building on it the way some of the other expansions do. And I don't feel like Alien Artifacts does that. Is it bad? No, but it does overcomplicate the game in a way that I don't feel really is necessary. And it makes the game much longer, which is one of the reasons why Race of the Galaxy is so much fun. It's quick and uh, accessible. And once you learn all the, you know, the different icons, there's a lot going on for it. So I would say Gathering Storm, yes. Alien Artifacts, possibly no, if you have any other expansions or just really like what the base game does. Uh, Daniel, what about you? Well, uh, going further into my deck builder stash, uh, I'm going to be talking about DC Deck Builder right here, which is the DC Comics-themed deck builder with lots of DC superheroes in it. I don't think it can be explained any more simply than that. Great game, lots of fun. One of the ones I've played the most. It got a lot of good workouts. uh, early on in my gaming career. Uh, so I think uh, that there's a lot of expansions for this. I'm going to set aside all the ones that are just like, hey, this addi- one additional superhero, those are all great. So I'm going to look at the bigger ones. And of those, the ones that I think is the best is Forever Evil. Uh, because one of the things that's kind of weird about DC deck builders, you have good guys v. good guys. And that's a little awkward. In a sense, right, you're, okay, well, why Why are we fighting? Why? What's happening here? And why am I, as Superman, getting Lex Luthor into my deck? That's so weird. Uh, well, Forever Evil brings bad guys into the loop. Uh, and so you can play bad guys be good guys. And that's kind of interesting. And in fact, there are some really nifty variants where things like, so you either player can buy anybody from the lineup. So good guys can buy good guys and bad guys and vice versa, right? So heroes and villains. But... If a hero buys a hero, they join their team. If a hero buys a villain, they're removed from the game, and vice versa. I thought that was an interesting twist. Uh, but even if you don't use that, it adds some of the most expansion to your your cast of characters and a really interesting twist on the game. The absolute worst, in my opinion, of these expansions is Crisis. Now, Crisis isn't terrible. It just is an aftermarket attempt to try to make DC Deck Builder do something it can't really do, or wasn't built to do initially. It's trying to make DC Deck Builder cooperative, but it really fails at that pretty hard uh, because the resulting game moves very slowly and is frankly dull as dirt. So actually, yeah, it might be terrible. Uh, I was maybe being too nice at the beginning there. <laughs> um, there are for later crisis expansions and that sort of thing. But look, DC Deck Builder wasn't designed to be cooperative initially. And crisis was probably the most awkward way to try to horn that in aftermarket. So just totally skip crisis. If you really want to play a superhero cooperative game, heck, if you want to play a cooperative superhero deck builder, Legendary is there for you. Um, but yeah, I, I would just leave Crisis to the side. But pick up Forever Evil and pick up DC Deck Builder. Chris, why don't you bring us home? All right. So for our final game with best and worst expansions, I'll admit right off the top, I am a completionist. So if I do love a game, I'm picking up all the expansions. So it gets a little pricey. But while you're picking up these expansions, they should be in an order of just kind of making gameplay better and better. So for our final 
kind of gateway game that really engages gamers and has some amazing expansions. I want to talk about Small World. Now, we've talked about Small World a lot, and it has some amazing fantasy races and some different gameplay elements. Now, it's kind of hard to say what's the best of the best, but what really does it for me is the expansion that's known as Cursed. Now, why I find this the best expansion is because some of the different races and powers in this game really do change the gameplay up in a way that no other expansion does. So first and foremost would be the curse power. The curse power is actually a zero power. It actually doesn't do anything good for you whatsoever, but when it's on the board as far as being able to pick a race power combo... If you want to skip over that cursed power, which you pretty much want to do, so you could have cursed dwarves, and they're now really getting no power because they're cursed, you got to pay three money to skip over that race instead of the usual one coin. So it becomes very expensive, and you know what? At some point, it actually becomes you know, worth it to take that cursed race because you're getting a lot of money for that. Now, that is probably the biggest part and the most enjoyable part. Anytime I see that power come into gameplay, I'm loving that. In addition, there's some other great powers. There is werewolves that add a plus two to your attack, but only happens every even number round where it's nighttime. And also marauding that allows you to not just attack once, but twice. And you can add into it the kobolds and goblins, which are classic fantasy races. So that is by far, for me at least, the best expansion. Now on the worst side, if there is such a worst side for Small World, that would be Small World Realms. Now Small World Realms is an interesting expansion because what it basically does is allow you to have a modular setup to your gameplay. It has all these different realms and these kind of different kind of hex-like pieces with all the different elements on them and you kind of slap them together and you can play pretty much any kind of version of small world that you want because the problem with the underground versus the traditional small world is some of the races benefit by a certain environmental factor what realms allows you to do is to have both those elements on the same board but it's so fiddly and it's so problematic to put that whole board together And the base game and the underground already have multiple boards that this expansion doesn't really get any kind of quality gameplay. And it's really something that you may want to pick up if you are a hardcore small world player. But otherwise, it's probably worth a skip, at least initially. All right, so that is our best and worst for gateway game expansions. We hope that you check out these expansions because they really do add something extremely valuable to gameplay. Unless you're an absolute completionist like me, avoid the the ones that are kind of on the worst side because they're not really adding much to the gameplay and actually might turn away gamers. All right, so that's everything for this week. Please keep in contact with us on Facebook, Twitter, BoardGamersAnonymous.com, our guild on BoardGameGeek. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you can, we'd appreciate any donations you can make on our Patreon account. The more that you donate, the more great episodes we can get out to you and increase the board game industry. Until next time, this is Chris. This is Anthony. And this is Daniel. And we'll save Renee a seat at the table. <laughs>